You're listening. No. You're listening to the Buns.com Podcast Network. (laughs) (laughs) Buns, buns, buns. Hi, everyone. Before we get this episode going, we have two quick announcements. First, Johnny from Wolf Saga has given us his music to use in our podcast. This means that during the episodes, you'll hear instrumentals, and at the end of each episode, we will play the track in full. Fittingly, the track for our first episode is called Tomorrow All Is Not Lost. You can find out more about Wolf Saga on Facebook by searching Wolf Saga. Thanks, Johnny. Secondly, we had a few audio glitches in episode one, but have since purchased new gear, so please bear with us as we get our podcast bearings knowing that things are already sorted out for episode two. Thank you for understanding and tuning in. I hope you enjoy episode one of Sustainable Joe's 2084. For all the wine lovers out there, what's the best wine? The best wine is the one in your glass uh, (laughs) that you enjoy with family and friends over a good meal Uh, discussing about how great your day was. That's the best wine. From Sustainable Joes, it is an absolute privilege to welcome you to episode one of 2084, Designing Tomorrow. This is a podcast where we'll look at the past and talk about the future, what it will take to create a sustainable tomorrow, all told by the people building it today. Hi, I'm Stephen Such, and on today's show, we're about to talk about two of my favorite things, sustainability and wine. So full disclosure, when I want to relax, I probably sit down with some beverage. And in my world, if that beverage isn't a tea, it might very well be a nice glass of red wine. I also just finished producing a documentary about sustainability, and believe me, as a species, we face some challenges deserving of at least a glass or two. And whether it's your kids, work, or simply wanting to connect with a friend over dinner, I bet you've also enjoyed a glass or two of the vino before, right? But have you ever thought about the impact of wine on the world? How is it being affected by climate change? And what, if anything, can us everyday Joes and James do to make a positive difference? Well, on today's show, we have a wine guy who is also a green guy. He's a sommelier, philanthropist, and the Grand Fromage, the Big Cheese, the CEO of Lifford Wine and Spirits, one of Canada's largest suppliers of premium wine. Oh, and there's one other benefit of sitting down with Mr. Stephen Campbell. So what are we drinking today, my friend? Uh, This is Shiraz from Barossa Valley. Um, In Barossa Valley uh, in, um, in Australia is there... Uh, most famous uh, wine going region, you know, we have Niagara, we have Okanagan, and they've got a number of regions, but Barossa perhaps is the most famous of them all. And Barossa, for those people who want to know, uh, means Valley of the Roses, Rosa right, in Spanish. So that's where it comes from. It reminded a military man of a valley that he saw in Spain, uh, and he called it Barossa after a Spanish valley. Valley, And then South Australia was settled by people who were who actually chose to settle in Australia rather than being sent there. They weren't uh, convicts. Uh, and so it's uh, a little different uh, in that part of the world. And it was uh, 
but they were fleeing religious prosecution. So they have a lot of Germans in Barossa Valley. And if you want to have some of the best salami in the world, go to Barossa and go to the delis there. They make phenomenal uh, salamis. Um, and uh, it's an area that, um, you know, we think of Australia, you don't think of it uh, potentially necessarily being impacted by climate change, and, and it, yet it is, and, and it's impacted in a very strange way. I, I had a meeting with this gentleman who, who uh, this is uh, uh, Thorne Clark, which is a family-owned winery uh, in Barossa Valley, and the owner, one of the sons, was up uh, earlier this year, and we were talking about climate change in Barossa, and uh, one of the things that you wouldn't think would be an impact of global warming uh, is the fact that, because it's warmer, it's actually drier, there's less humidity in the air, and when there's less humidity in the air, wine-growing areas are more prone to frost. And you think, oh, what? what is, but it's true, because moisture helps the air stay warm, and when you take the moisture out of the air, it can cool faster, so it does. So in Barossa, they've actually had trouble with frost uh, in some of the uh, most recent years, which has not been something normal, and certainly something you wouldn't think of as being a, a result of global warming. Uh, wine industry is definitely being challenged by global warming. Uh, some areas, uh, of course, are benefiting. Here we are in Canada, and certainly you can see that uh, you know a little bit more warmer temperatures might help our uh, grape crops here in Canada. Uh, but grapes are a product that are is um, well. Some varieties are very um, very sensitive to t climate change, and some varieties are less sensitive. So. In uh, one of the wine varieties here in this market in Ontario that uh, this show has been showing a lot of promise uh, is Pinot Noir, and a lot of people are making great Pinot Noir here, and we we've had a uh, you know a nice run up, and so again you think oh okay Canada it's getting warmer Pinot Noir is going to do better here in Niagara, well I've had four of the top winemakers in Ontario tell me this year that 2016 the summer of 2016 was too hot for Pinot Noir. And again, something that you don't think is going to happen. You think, okay, it's, it's hotter, so the grapes are going to get riper. There's more sunshine. They're going to get sweeter. There's going to be more sugar. In actual fact, the heat caused the plants to shut down. They weren't, they weren't synthesizing the, the sunset, sunlight. And they ended up with lower alcohol uh, yields uh, in the grapes uh, in Pinot Noir in Ontario in 2016 than they did in previous years because it was too hot. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so these, here we are, Australia suffering from frost, hot climate, suffering from frost, and here in Canada, a cool climate, suffering from too much heat. So the impact of global warming on grape varieties is, is, a, is a very interesting subject, but it's a very complex subject, and it's different uh, in so many different regions. The other thing, though, is getting hotter in Barossa. So you've got the spring frost to deal with, and you've got hotter summer temperatures. And what um, uh, they were telling me was that uh, that the what you do as a vintner is you try to move uphill. You know, you try to get because uh, the, the higher you go, the cooler the temperatures will be. So the uh, the valley floors um, vineyards are are uh, not being abandoned, but the new plantings are being held, are being planted up higher uh, to have a slightly cooler. Um, uh, temperature growing season, and also when you plant higher, you uh, you lessen your risk of frost because frost tends to pool in, in the bottom and the very lowest part of the valley. Uh, so that's how Australia or Barossa specifically is kind of react to it. But you can only go so high. Well, and first of all, you have to have hills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so like, 
what's the long-term solution? Well, and that's, you know, that's one of the, uh, the things that when we look at global warming and we see things not just in, the, in, in terms of plant life, but also in animal life, you know, birds and other animals and insects are being driven farther and farther up the mountains, but eventually the mountain ends, <laughs> right? And you can go no further. Uh, and um, I remember being in, in Costa Rica and having a local guide there telling me, you know, they lost their golden frog uh, to that particular issue. They couldn't go any further and, and finally just wiped them out. Um, and uh, so uh, it's a very complex thing when we look at climate change and how it's impacting our world. And I mean how we're subsequently impacting it as well. Now, thinking of the podcast... What I really want people to experience is that there are people like you out there working to tackle these issues. Well, and trying to find ways uh, to, um, you know, because we can't turn green, green you can be green, but you're, you'd be naive to think that we're going to turn back the hands of time and we're going to be able to, you know, massively change people's um, buying habits in a short poss- a term. People aren't like that. People are acquisitive, and if you tell them they can't have something, that's, that means they more more they want it. And uh, so, you know, we have to be realistic. And and so, uh, and we look at, you know, I deal with wine. Wine's been traded for like ten thousand years or something. It's like eight thousand years BC when wines first started making. Uh, I was watching a Michael Pollan show on fermentation uh, on a series called Cooked on Netflix, and. Uh, he put out the, uh, the hypothesis is that we as human beings might have come together uh, in, in little uh, villages and, and, uh, uh, and things to, so we could ferment things. You know, we're not going to stop people from trading. So you, when we look at consumer products and we think about, um, well, what then can we do? And what we can do is look at, at lessening the uh, carbon footprint of products. Uh, and, you know, so um, a lot of work that's gone on uh, in that uh, throughout the world, uh, more of it in Europe than anywhere else. I mean, I saw just yesterday that uh, I think it was IKEA saying that in their main location they didn't send anything to landfill last year, which is pretty incredible for a huge company. Uh, but that requires years and years and years and years of labor and a whole lot of commitment to it. And we're seeing that more in European economic community than we are here in North America. You know, what have I tried to do? Well, I'm interested in uh, the carbon footprint of things. Uh, I'm interested in, and I'm, I'm interested in my business because that's what I know. And I'm interested in making my business, the wine business, as green as it possibly can. And so I've developed a couple of products, uh, and I'm still working on things to because uh, you can't stop thinking about this stuff. And, and, and to be honest, I've had a, some things that haven't worked out so well, but you've got to start somewhere. And, and, you, and you also, the other thing, you have to start somewhere, and if you're not successful, not be afraid to try again. Hey, everyone. Just a quick shout-out to two of our supporters. First, to Steam Whistle Brewing, from their 100% renewably powered brewery to their green bottles, which can be reused up to three times more than a standard brown bottle. Quote, end quote, Steam Whistle is proud to support Sustainable Joes as we work to create a sustainable tomorrow together. 2084 is also thankful for the support of BUNS, your city network. 
Buns connects you with the people in your neighborhood to find the things you need to fuel your real life or swap things you already have to get items you need. You can also find jobs that pay the bills, homes for rent, advice, and just a place to talk about your city. Buns is available online at buns.com, that's buns with a Z, and on your phones via the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Lastly, if you're wondering how your business can be highlighted on this podcast, send us an email to 2084, that's 2084, at sustainablejoes.com. That's Joes with an S, because whether you are a group of Josephs or Joannes, together we are a group of Joes. Now, back to the show. Uh, and I started off with a, a product that um, uh, called Planetary Wines, and the idea is very simple. Uh, if you bought a bottle of this wine, uh, we would plant a tree for you. And uh, I, you know, we certainly thought it was a great idea, uh, but we were a little ahead of ourselves, and um, it was at a time when the LCBO here in Ontario, Liquor Control Board of Ontario, was looking to also reduce their carbon footprint uh, and the carbon footprint of their consumers by using uh, plastic bottles. Now, not that that's a bad idea, but it happened at a time when a lot of research had come out about plastic bottles and, uh, and how some of them had contained this particular type of chemical that was bad for people. And of course, nobody wants that. <laughs> and, uh, but what people didn't realize, of course, that that was a small portion of the plastic bottles. And it was also very easy to check. If you had a plastic bottle, you could take a look at it. It's, it's uh, um, you know, there's a code on the bottom of plastic bottles that tell you, tells you um, whether it w- would have been one of these bottles that had a plastic issue or a chemical issue. But, you know, at, at the same time, uh, we have um, that thinking about uh, putting wine in a plastic bottle to lessen its weight, have a lower carbon footprint of it traveling, uh, you know, we're up against the fact that uh, bottled water in plastic is an absolute disaster for the environment. And, you know, it's, it's a ridiculous thing here in Canada. I, I'm always amazed when I go to the grocery store and I see families checking out with, you know, 24, 48 bottles of water. When we have, you know, in Canada, probably the best drinking water in the world. I mean, maybe New Zealand probably might be a little cleaner, but you know, it's, we've got amazing water here in Canada. And yet we're importing water from where? And I'm sure, oh, I'm sure that they're, you know, pass all the tests and everything. But why do we really need to do that? Anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic, which I like to do. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I mean, uh, we, we do that. Uh, the, uh, you know, the situation is that we got this crazy situation where the city of Toronto is saying we're drowning in plastic bottles. People saying, oh, you can't drink anything in a plastic bottle. It's going to be bad for you. And we create a product that had it in a plastic bottle. It didn't go so well, needless to say. And also we have to deal with a situation that it's expensive to plant trees. And it made the wine a little too expensive. And that was one of the things that was, uh, you know, I, I realized after that experiment that people are, um, uh, that are, they are interested in being green as long as they, um, you know, get to, uh, you know, doesn't cost them that much or cost them nothing. They're not really willing to spend. They'd say, I will buy a green product as long as it doesn't cost anything more. Uh, and, and again, you say, well, and if you're, you know, if you're idealistic, you might say, oh, what's wrong with people? 
But then you have to be realistic. People, uh, when we look at people here in Canada, and we read the statistics that something like 35% of all families, if they missed one paycheck, would be in financial peril. And so you can't expect them to spend more money on something green when they're looking at to feed their kids, right, and, and put food in their table. So, you know, that certainly was a slap in the face. Say, okay, well, anything I do from now on has to be, uh, has to be the same price. It has, to, it has to be, you can't make it any more expensive. Which brings up the question, what is price? Yes, financial, but also social and environmental. By the way, everyone, to accompany our wine, we have some cheese and olives which I also looked into the water footprint of. I did a little geeking out because I think that like so often we hear about the carbon footprint of things. However, I believe we're often remiss not to recognize the water implications of producing all our food. For example, are you ready for some trivia? How many liters of water does it take to produce a standard 125 milliliter glass of wine? You know, I would say it's probably 10 to 1, um, which would be, if it's 10 to 1, it would be 50 ounces. It would be like a gallon and a half. 109 liters for a 125 milliliter wow. glass of wine. Yep. Now, it, it does note that in France, Italy, and Spain, the largest wine-producing countries in the world, the average water footprint of wine is 90, 90, and 195 liters per glass of wine, respectively. Wow. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's mind-blowing but we don't see that water because what it also says is the global average water footprint for grapes is 610 liters per kilogram yeah and one kilogram of grapes gives you 0.7 liters of wine yeah so that makes the water footprint of wine 870 liters of water per liter of wine mm. yes and it also tells us that how little we 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 charge for water and pay for water right yeah. And just how inexpensive it is, because if it was, if water was expensive, and we had that kind of ratio, the glass of wine would be a hundred bucks, <laughs> right? But water is not expensive, and, and when we, and it's a thing that, another thing we have to deal with when it comes to consumer behavior is when you make things too cheap, they'll get wasted. I think people um, want to find solutions. I think that they need to have some, some guidance. I think they need to have, um, need to have hope, right? Uh, that we can uh, do something positive. So I keep trying, right? And so uh, I was working with the, uh, one of the top selling Italian white wines in Canada. And we uh, went, we engaged um, Carbon Zero, uh, one of Canada's best uh, uh, scientific companies that looks at the footprint of everything. And uh, we worked, uh, went a project to make this wine carbon neutral. It was really pretty interesting because we had great support from the winery and from our community. The LCBO really helped us, excuse me, trigger every, or to count every little thing. And we looked at uh, what the carbon footprint was from the, the day the vineyard woke up in the spring, right? And started, you know, started being, uh, um, you know, agricultural processes started, uh, to the wine being delivered to the individual LCBO stores across Ontario, and, uh, uh, and that was quite a project uh, because we wanted it to be, uh, you know, we wanted it to be scientific, we wanted to cover all the bases, and the last thing we, last thing you ever want to do in a situation like this is say, oh, well, you guys are underestimating, you're just, you know, it's green, greenwashing, you want to get it really right. So we took a lot of effort and a lot of time 
uh, to get it, the scientists to agree on what the carbon footprint of wine is. It turned out it was about, I can't, two and a half or three kilos per bottle of carbon. You talk about water, so it's a lot less carbon uh, uh, impactful than it is water impactful. Well, water is also easier to see. Yeah. Because, like, if I, somebody knows what a gallon of water looks yeah, like. Yeah, what does a pound of carbon look like? Exactly. <laughs> Same with, like, what does a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere look like? When you say you've lowered your CO2 emissions by X number of tons, people have no idea, Our, yeah. ourselves included. Yeah. And that's an issue. Yeah. And because if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Yeah, it, it is definitely a problem in just, just, just grasping what it means to, what does a car, pound of carbon look like or a ton of carbon? And also how it, what our individual footprint looks like. And it's, you know, when you break it down individually, it really isn't so large. The problem is that there's 7 billion of us. And yeah. And if you, you know, so it turns out that, you know, it's, uh, when you combine all our carbon footprints, it's uh, quite a large number. That um, compound effect. Yeah. So here in Ontario, there's a, uh, in Canada, there's an organization called Bullfrog Power. They look at your, your, your usage, uh, and, uh. And so I get two hydro bills. I get the hydro bill from Hydro, and then I get the hydro bill from Bullfrog, and Bullfrog Power goes to pay to subsidize the production of green power, whether it's from uh, micro hydroelectric stations or uh, you know um, windmill generated or uh, solar, wherever it's coming from, we, we subsidize that. The other thing that we do here at Lifford is we look at our carbon footprint uh, and Again, try to be really um, precise in, in, in our business. You know, we do travel a lot, and so we have to think about that. And we bring people together, and we have to think about that. And, and so we try to consider everything that we do and try to really come up to a, to a you know, good estimation of what, we, what our carbon footprint is as a company nationally. And uh, then we're buying uh, carbon offsets from Tree Canada. I don't think of it as being an extra cost. I think of it being a real cost and that we're actually paying our way. Um, so what does 2017 look like? Um, really make this in mind myself. I really sort of through, um, you know, with contracts with wineries and stuff, I do believe that one of the things we need to do is source as much as, as we possibly can locally, at the same time recognizing that some varietals will not grow well here. So if we want Shiraz, you know, we're going to have to get it from other countries. Can't we make a good Syrah in Canada? And isn't a Syrah and a Shiraz the same wine? Yeah, the Syrahs, the are, Syrahs are the same grape. Uh, and Syrahs, in what they call it in France, and Shiraz is what they call it in Australia. This is Shiraz. Yeah, That's yeah. what we're drinking, is Shiraz. Shiraz. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's not as peppery as most Shirazes. Am I mistaken you, in that? You're right. Shiraz does have... Um, uh, some of them are have this. This there's a they've discovered what makes Shiraz be peppery. It absolutely does smell like pepper, uh, and it's a chemical called rotundin. And one gram of rotundin will make a swimming pool smell peppery. So it's massively impactful. Wow. And so this one doesn't have any in it <laughs> because there's no pepper in, it in this wine at all. Uh, but it's not it's not something that is essential for the smell of Shiraz. It's something that happens in a lot of Shiraz, that you get the smell of pepper. And it took them a long, long time to figure out what it was, uh, because it's so, it's so powerful. So is that an admirable quality, or a quality that 
makes it less desirable? Well, some people, especially if you're growing uh, Syrah in the south of France, will say that that's what makes it, it gives it its typicity, that it's a typical example of Shiraz. But I have to think that if we look at uh, food science and, and, and as I've described it as a chemical outside of, you know, um, being grape, uh, associated with grape, because um, it's not grown in the grape, right? It's something that could be on the outside of the grape, on the skin. It's not coming from inside the grape. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to smell like pepper to be a great Shiraz. Because it's a pretty great wine. Mm-hmm. It's really rich, smooth. But it's not overly full-bodied. Am I mistaken in that, too? You, and that's what they've tried to get away from in Australia. Because and like, this is their best wine. And so this is them trying to make a wine that is refreshing mm-hmm. and fresh and not heavy. And we have to remember what wine, one of the things about wine is that, first of all, it's meant to be refreshment, right? It's supposed to re- refresh your palate. And I've, you know, my first career is in food, and, and uh, when I look at um, food and wine matching, and I look at the areas of Europe that are, you know, uh, great wine-producing areas, what I noticed is what came first, the food or the wine, right? Chicken or the egg, what came first, the food or the wine? What really come first is the food. What can they grow in that particular area? And then they find the grapes that go with that food, right? Oh, for me, that's absolutely the way it is, yeah. And so uh, that's how they make their local choices. So you go to Burgundy, which is a dairy area, lots of milk, butter, cream, oh my God, and really like triple cream cheeses and stuff. Amazing with Chardonnay Pinot Noir. And, um, and you go to Piedmont, which is in the... Now, would that be because a Chardonnay Pinot Noir would cut the... They have the acidity. Exactly. Work with the cheese, yeah, they the work cheese. really well with cheese. You go to Provence, which is, you know, it goes south of France. It's not that far, it's a couple hundred miles. You go into a completely different area because it's so sunny down there. In the south of France, in the Midi, uh, the Provence, you get 300 days of sunshine a year, right? It's sunny, it's warm. Uh, you get all these vegetables, beautiful vegetables, uh, aubergine, courgettes, tomatoes, peppers. There's much more, much more vegetables in the cuisine in southern France than there is in northern France. You go further north of France, less vegetables you get. Uh, and the wines completely change completely, and you have a lot of low-acid wines, uh, Coteron, Cheddar de Pape. Uh, these wines are very low-acid. They go with so many different kinds of food uh, and really um, match the cuisine of the area. And, and you don't have to go very far. You go to Piedmont, which is the northeast side of Italy. I mean, these, we're talking about areas that are, you know, a couple hundred kilometers apart. And it's an area that's uh, famous for its production of meat. Uh, there, Barolo, Barbaresco, Barbera, Nebi, uh, Dolcetto are the grapes of that area, all, mostly red wine, uh, and meant to go with, with meat. Uh, and uh, also, uh, in the thing of Italy uh, is that we having studied it for forever, is that Italians love acidity. So their food is acid-based. Think tomatoes. Think of uh, when you order a steak in, in Tuscany, and they're famous for steak, and this, the steak Florentine uh, is the, in Tuscany is their famous steak. 
you'll be served. You order a steak Florentine in any restaurant, you'll be served half a lemon with it. And you're meant to squirt that all over your steak and have it with the local wine, and it's fantastic. Right? So the regionality of food and wine is something that, to me, probably developed together, but food was the most important element because if you couldn't grow something there, you're not going to make a wine that's going to go with something that doesn't grow there, right? Fair. So things that grew there, and what wine goes with that? And that's what they figured out. And all through Europe, that's what you, the local cuisine matches the local wine. Well, here we are in Ontario. Ontario, you can fit Germany, France, and, and England together in Ontario. Well, but if you travel across France, you see how many different regional food styles there are. It's shocking. There's no one French cuisine. There is multiple French cuisines. You know, and just where are you? you know, and, 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 and like I said, you go to Provence, there's just limitless vegetables. You go up to Champagne, try to find a vegetable in Champagne. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I remember going there and being in a restaurant and I ordered a salad. I thought, oh my God, I'm finally gonna have a salad, something green in Champagne. I got the salad. The salad was half potatoes, croutons, and bacon. <laughs> half. But these are all asides, you know, that's how our society has developed. Uh, around its its food and wine choices. So 2017, you'll, you're going to buy or try to source more Ontario local wine. Wines. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I've already done it. I bought. I made my first purchase of bulk wine in Ontario uh, to work with uh, uh, with uh, one of our local my one of my suppliers, and to provide wine to restaurants here in Ontario. It's meant totally, totally local, local, local. Uh, that's everything. We're we're. It's meant to go right here into Ontario. Yeah, I'm pretty pumped about that because, like, I've been doing this for 20 years and never done this before. Well, and it also supports from a sustainability standpoint. Yeah. Everything we just talked about. You reduce the carbon footprint because you reduce the transportation footprint. So, I mean, where do you find the, the, the courage? Where do you find the motivation? Other than is it just, like, self-driven? Do you think of... I don't... Um, Stephen, I really don't know uh, to tell you except, except that it's been... It's part and parcel of who I am as an individual, as a human being. Um, and as time has gone on, I've become more and more focused on environmental issues than anything else. Because I've come to the conclusion that it is the most, uh, if we look at any given threat to the ongoing uh, existence of human, you know, human species, it's global warming and, and pollution that's the biggest threat. It's, you know, and, and I have lots of sympathy for anything, like all kinds of things, you know. Uh, as we're sitting here with my dog, I mean, like, I, you, know, you know, pet rights, rights for, rights, rights for animals, sure. Um, you know, there's uh, people with disabilities, there's, there's, there's people who are, have, you know, mental illness, there's so many things that we could put our life's work behind and, and, and all incredibly valuable. But what's the biggest issue that human beings are facing if it's not environmental? Uh, you know, I've been puzzled, because we talked about this, I've been puzzled about trying to uh, spread carbon neutrality. How do we make more businesses carbon neutral? Uh, how do we publicize the fact that, yes, there is an expense to it, but it's still affordable. You know, it's not, it's not going to close your doors because you're going to be carbon neutral. Uh, and there's a benefit to it, right? And that um, 
if industry or businesses are carbon neutral, you will find that your employees will really like that. And if, and I think I'm talking to any, anybody who uh, understands anything about employment, when we, the worst thing that can happen to any business is someone leaves. So when it comes to wine, what can the everyday person do to make a positive difference? I mean, because people love drinking wine. People have been liking drinking wine for 10,000 years, right? Naturally. And so, what you, if I was going to tell you to make a difference, what you need to do is recognize that the cheapest things at your local wine store are going to be the most adulterated wines. They're going to be um, the wines that the manufacturer, rather than the producer, will take every single shortcut they possibly can, will use every single additive they possibly can to give you the cheapest possible wine they can and make the most possible money. And compare and contrast that to a family-owned winery that's only bottling wine. A state bottle means that they're only bottling wine from their own properties. And they uh, often are multi-generational companies that have had owned the land for, for hundreds of years. Or, uh, and and the only th one of the biggest things they're concerned about is the health of the land and passing it on to future generations. And those wines do not have to be expensive. That's the thing that people are, are forgetting because the big brands, uh, because they are big brands, spend a lot of money on advertising promotion, which means they have to cut even more money out of the cost production, right? And I'll just, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Different wine countries have different rules, but if you look at California, uh, California's rule is that if it's 75% of one grape type, you can call it a grape type, right? So, it, so what they do with that is all the, the top white wine grape is Chardonnay, and the top red wine grape is Cabernet. So those grapes are the most expensive. So when you go in there and you buy a bottle of cheap Cabernet or cheap Chardonnay, what do you think? is in the bottle because you think you're 75 percent 25 percent exactly and and the big guys blend um the cheapest possible will be 75.1 percent chardonnay harvested at really high crop levels which means it's tasteless and then they'll throw in 25 percent of the cheapest possible wine they can or you can buy a wine from a family-owned winery and it's going to be 100% Chardonnay grown on their own property. Um, and so you don't have to buy into those big brands. Uh, the, the thing that, you know, in grocery stores, we're trapped because everything that's on the shelf, someone's paid for it to be on the shelf. If you see a can of beans on a grocery store shelf, the manufacturer has paid the, the grocery store for it to be there. Every single product, right? So there's really little choice, and so you get the crap. You know, you know what they say in grocery stores, never go into the middle aisles, yeah. right? Never go to the middle aisles, because it's all crap. You don't want to buy it. Fortunately, here in Canada, fortunately, we have the state, the provincial uh, liquor boards, and people love to hate them. The thing they don't realize is that they're the best advocate for wine lovers across Canada. 
and we have the best wine selection in Canada that beats the crap out of England, beats the crap out of America, beats the crap out of Australia, beats the crap out of New Zealand. We have the best wine stores in the world right here in Canada, and people love to complain about them every single day. But you can go in to an LCBO here in Ontario and find great family-produced wines at really fantastic prices. And you don't have to buy the biggest wine companies in the world. They're the biggest producers of shit in the world. And just like in the food business, what do they do to make us want the wine? The, two, the, the number one selling red wine here in Canada is a wine produced by Gallo, the number one producer of wine in the world. It's called apothic. I call it apathetic. There is one teaspoon of sugar in every glass of wine. One teaspoon of sugar. What the hell? What empty calories? You get empty calories. In the first place of the wine, they talk about empty calories. You throw in a teaspoon of sugar, how much empty calories you're getting? Four or five teaspoons of sugar in a bottle of wine? What it is, it's unfortunately what it is, is big businesses understanding how to sell, dumb down a product to make it so appealing that you don't recognize how bad it is for you. Right? You don't recognize how bad it is for you. And there's so many consumer products out there like that. Uh, and the government continues to allow them to produce them. <laughs> it's sad. But here in Ontario, we can actually go into a liquor store and find family-owned wineries at affordable prices producing great wine. And you don't have to buy the biggest, the crap that's sold all over the world. We're lucky. Got kind of blessings. For all the wine lovers out there, what's the best wine? The best wine is the one in your glass uh, <laughs> that you enjoy with family and friends over a good meal uh, discussing about how great your day was. That's the best wine. I, I had a grandmother who, was, I, I, who probably had a grade 8 education, but she was the wisest person I've ever met. And she told me a long time ago that hunger was the best sauce. And thirst is probably creates the best wine. <laughs> <laughs> that was Stephen Campbell of Lifford Wine and Spirits. You can find out more about Lifford Wine and Spirits at lifford.ca. Now, please don't turn us off just yet, because this is the part of the show where we want to hear from you. Do you know someone or some company that's creating a sustainable tomorrow right now? Let us know at sustainablejoes.com. Thanks for listening to the show today. Please also consider subscribing on iTunes and do us a favor, write us a review while you're there. Lastly, our project is publicly funded. You can find a link to our Patreon page at sustainablejoes.com and become a monthly change agent there. As always, I have to say thank you to the one and only Koji Nagata. He is the man that produces this very show. Thanks, Koji. Oh yeah, and remember that every glass of wine takes nearly 100 liters of water to produce. So waste not want not my friends, and always drink responsibly. This is Stephen Such, and we'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. And now it's time for the track from Wolf Saga. Please enjoy. Today's track is called Tomorrow, All Is Not Lost. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs>